And I'd like to just see if there's any um, comments or questions, reflections, just to spark some more uh, conversation, any topics that you'd be interested to, to broach. So kind of have it a little bit more interactive um, and to really think of it as uh, a generosity. I know for me, it's like the safest thing is just to hold back, but it's actually a, a generous offering when we have things to talk about because it's very meaningful to hear what's on what's on your mind. And I think we have a mic, so that'll help the voice. Pass the mic around. Thanks, Alexis. Um, yeah. And just say your name. Oh, Elaine. Hi, Elaine. Um, I'm just wondering, I really appreciate it. About the, the, the view, white male, of this conditioning and everything. I'm just wondering um, if practice in itself is enough to see the lens without mm. that rubbing in community and learning other people's stories. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say. What your, I mean, I, I personally don't think that's it's enough, and I'm wondering what yeah, your experience yeah. is. I know you're part of you run a sangha. I, there, and I would say. Part of that uh, question comes a little bit back to what do we mean by practice? And we could even say that a lot of what has been conditioned a little bit in the way we think about practice could be also a lens. That the lens of which we might be seeing practice through may be a a little bit of a white patriarchal type of lens that says, sit still in your silo and do your work. Who is that comfortable for? That may be more comfortable for some people. Um, So when I think of what is practice, to me, practice is, there's no, there's no boundaries. What is practice? Practice then is, and we think of, let's say, the triple gem in the Dhamma, Buddha Dhamma. Then that's awakening, the Buddha, the teachings, the truth, being curious about that. The Dhamma, the truth, the nature of reality. That if we really want to walk a path of that, then this is what we're, we're really moving towards, is to know things as they are. We get we get curious and interested to know the whole range, not just escaping, but actually moving into life. And then Sangha community is a triple, one of the triple gems, right? And it's talked about a lot in, in the teachings around just how important it is, right? And oftentimes in historical what's preserved, you'd have communities come together and then before they would leave, the nuns and the monks, they would turn to each other and say, is there anything that I wasn't able to see about myself? Please share with me any ways that I didn't comport myself well in community. And what that is doing is very directly being said, yes, here's something. And the here is something is not not to kind of just fix you. Here is something that I can see that is probably a block for you on your path to freedom. 
And I've talked about this recently a lot around how difficult that is to do. Because typically, if we're going to try to give someone feedback, what are we doing? Criticizing and we're trying to get something that we don't like to change, to really care, to really see the other being and say, I really care about your path. Here is something I want to share with you. But it means we're not, and we have to be able to see our mind then. This is where the inner and outer come together. If you can see that your heart and mind is free, uh, free in the sense of you're able to sit with your own discomfort, and you're aware of that, and then you feel that calming down, you can even feel it. Oh, I'm not just reaching out to get rid of this feeling. When I'm comfortable with having this feeling, it may be anger and righteousness and that stuff, but are able to be aware of it. Then touch in with the motivations that are based in kindness and care. The results are so different. Someone can really take in what it is that, that we're, what it is we're trying to say, because they can feel it. But when you're trying to change them, as kids are great around, their radar is so sensitive. They're, you know, parents are trying to get them to change because they're getting angry. It just gets like, that's it. It just is going to escalate. But if the parents are calmer, right, the, the caregivers, and what they're trying to do is actually support the moment, it's a very different, this is true, just this is the nature of the mind. When it's more settled, more clarity, easier to be in whatever dynamic. So just that question of what is practice? What are, what are the ways in which we might limit this idea of practice? And I know that that's not, you're not limiting it, but we can do that, which is, you know, this is one of the things I like to play with a lot around the bell, right? So what does that signal usually mean at the end of a sitting? Yeah, you're done. You're, you can stop practicing, which means, oh, oh, thank God the bell rang, right? Which that feeling is basically that striving energy has come in and the bell goes, ah, and we go, oh. That ought to be the way we start practicing. At the end of the bell, when the bell rings, the beginning of practice, oftentimes, because now you feel relaxed. Right now, this feels comfortable. Am I still aware? Yes. Am I sure? But I'm not trying so hard. This isn't quite, I'm not so sure. Unless I'm tightening myself into a knot, tying myself into a knot, it's not real practice, right? And then we get into this. So how do we find ways to really be natural, be ourselves, and witness? No, to know. The boundaries of our practice really start to open, right? And that's, it does then become not just sitting, which can at times be uh, be withdrawing. It can be. Obviously, sitting quietly is an enormous benefit to our stability of mind. And the Buddha talked about so often, go to a quiet place, the foot of a tree, a hut. But it was for the purpose of developing clarity, right? And to, de and to see the way things are. And so we want to do that on our own sometimes, but then also see how are you? And this is why, you know, meditation teachers will often say at the end of a, of a retreat, if you've had like, you know, a kind of a high state of mind, it's like, okay, so if you think you're free, go spend some time around your family. <laughs> and then let's see what comes up, right? And that, the reason is because 
if you're really curious to see what's lying in your heart and mind, move towards life, right? And that also means cultivating yourself quietly, but move towards. So this word um, anusaya, anusaya are these latent tendencies. I like to reflect on, on that. We all have these habits of mind, mind and heart, that when they are triggered, they come up. So the latent tendencies in terms of the things that we are going to be mostly freeing ourselves are the habits, the three main ones of greed, right? Pulling in, craving, aversion, resistance, pushing away, and then delusion, not knowing, not knowing wisely or correctly, unaware. So those patterns, we could say, are waiting to be expressed. When life comes and pushes a button, that is a moment we get to see. Usually, and I do this too, Susan can attest to this, sometimes I say, you're the cause of my anger coming up. I'm right to be angry, right? So that's what the mind says. But what's the deeper cause? The, right, the conditions for not understanding clearly and anger in the sense of reactive overwhelm. Oh, here's an opportunity. I get to see it. That's hard to do because we take it personally and we get caught in the energy of that moment and we want it to stop. But if we can get curious, moving towards these places, our, really our life does truly become, a, this is what practice really means. And if we look at the Mindfulness Sutta, the teachings on mindfulness, you're basically, it's teachings about how to be mindful in everything, right? Through everything. So yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And um, I think that it is for each of us to just explore, am I, am I listening and learning? Am I curious? And where do I compartmentalize my practice? What else can I open to? I'm, I'm ready to pass the mic, but I wonder if sometime this weekend <coughs> or sometime I'd be curious, since you had a sangha now in Portland, how you create the conditions to approach what the monks and nuns did. Right. How you create that kind of trust. And you know, John and I talk about being fierce friends. Yeah, you know? right. Um, and I know many of us here in the room today, and certainly at New York Insight, would be interested in how yeah. that happens or cultivate that. Great, yeah. We'll spend the whole weekend giving each other feedback. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And I'll just add, just around compartmentalizing practice, I had really put my whole practice emphasis on the seating cushion. I've often shared that um, when I was living at the monastery, Utejaniya, the teacher, would he would say, please tell me anything about your practice that you're knowing, anything in your awareness other than your sitting. Because I would just report all of this, all of these states of mind when I was sitting, and his whole emphasis was continuity of awareness. And every time I would be reporting, I would you know, then share about the sitting. And so he then kind of put a rule on me saying, I only want to hear something from really the moment you get up from your sitting to when you come back again, tell me anything at all that you're able to be aware of. 
right? And so just one little exercise I did with the Sangha the night, uh, Monday night when we were just together, uh, here out goes, was um, to see if they could get out the door after they had put their shoes on to the outside door with awareness by the time they reached the door. But for many of us, as soon as this is over, by the time you're off your chair, it's gone, right? But then it comes back. Gone, comes back, gone. So lightly putting in that intention, just a very light, and it doesn't have to be make it, you know, a problem or make just curious. Can I do it? You get interested. If it's more playful, be more inviting. If it's a chore, you're never going to see anyone again, right? So I can tell. If I've made it for a chore, no one comes. If I, if I make it playful, everyone comes, right? Because that's the mind. The mind likes to learn. And wonderfully, that's actually what is supportive in the Dhamma. There's so many pointers towards joy, towards lightness, in the qualities that get developed. Even when we're sitting with greed and aversion and reactivity, right? that we can actually start to really appreciate the feeling, the benefit of knowing it. And then that becomes onward, onward leading. It's onward leading. And we don't, when we don't see that, then we kind of spiral down. It becomes more, I'm no good, I can't do this, and we just start to judge ourselves rather than being feeling great that we're seeing. Potentially. What practices that help you most? Yeah. What practices will help you most cultivate equanimity in your own life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in my life, what has helped me the most to develop equanimity? Mm. It's a big topic. Um, I'd be curious to hear as well from other people what they what has helped them. I think one of the things that have, has helped me a lot is the emphasis on making my life my practice, really as a framing in my mind. So, just that that ongoing continuity that is one big support. And it's not then that, okay, I'm always continuously aware, but it, it, it means that I'm, I'm curious. There's an attitude that starts to shift that I get curious about what is happening. What's happening here? So continuity awareness is a big one. I'd say another element for me in, in equanimity, and this is just a really personal way that I was taught around view, the power of view in our practice. A lot of us, when we kind of first are relating to, to meditation, all we're trying to do is to be aware. It's hard enough to be aware. And then there's this phrase from Utejaniya, awareness alone is not enough. I'm like, oh God, awareness alone is hard enough. And now it's not enough. It's like, oh great. It's like, this is hopeless. Like hardly be aware and now it's not enough. Um, so then the okay, camera to remember, okay, awareness is not so hard. Just remembering is a little hard. We remember, aware. And then it's not enough in the sense that we need some kind of wisdom that's working. Some reflections. So in a relationship setting, in an interpersonal, 
when I remember that the other person is a being, a human being, and they are a process, they have a mind, they have a body, I can, and that wisdom then is, I know that, we all know this, but we don't normally remind ourselves. So then what happens is we see them through the lens of whatever stories we have, our wishes, our desires, our aversions. We're not seeing them as their own unfolding journey, conditioned by all the things that they have experienced. And this is always obviously happening for us. And when we know this really personally, it begins to to happen automatically for other people as well. But we can bring it into our mind, particularly when we see ourselves either very quickly assuming we know what should be happening for someone else. So this is why family, we have the most assumptions and we put them in the kind of tightest box of our making. <clears throat> right, because we, we have this um, idea, I already know you. They're not then free. They're not free in their moment to be just as they are. And I've, I've often shared around how being with a teacher, the first time I was with a teacher, I could just see every time, week after week, when I would go to report to him, there was a sense of, I don't know, I felt like, oh, this is really free. And it took me a while to feel why it felt so good. It's because he wasn't holding, like a dragging a psychological identity of me through time. There was meeting me, open. Still informed by his understanding of who I was, or what, you know, everything he's known about me. So it wasn't like forgetting, but being present, being open. So when we can do that, and again, this is a practice knowing where we get caught. So if we know around family, we tend to have the most opinions. Then already we ought to be bringing in a little bit more curiosity. Right? If we have people that are public figures that we know trigger the mind. Okay. What's, what's a wise way of looking at this? Wise and skillful. It doesn't mean ever ignoring, just wise and skillful. What is the right way so that I'm adding wholesome qualities to this world whenever I can? How do we do that? Right? So that's, it is practice. And there's, like in all the Dhamma, there's no silver bullet. There is the curiosity, the interest, and trying different ways. And all of our personalities and conditionings are different. So different techniques you know, can, can work. Does anyone have anything that they want to share in terms of something that um, particularly helpful for them around uh, something equanimity, around what's helped you f- find equanimity in the midst of difficulty? Um, not forgetting about causes and conditions. So, not forgetting causes and conditions. Right. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. That, especially in both in relationship to you know close relationships, yeah. but also as you were talking about in 
relationship to public figures, um, recognizing that they, uh, I, well, first that I'm seeing things, as you were describing earlier, through the lens of my own causes and conditions, and they have their own causes and conditions, which has brought them into a particular way of being that they had no control of. Right, um, right. And so that just kind of opens up a little bit of space mm -hmm. to recognize the connection in that way. And if there's a connection, there's a level of equanimity. Mm. That's one thing. And then the other thing, and this has to do with the, the those moments where we lose, where we're not aware. Um, <clears throat> the moment that there's an experience of dukkha, of imbalance, that's the moment to, that wakes me up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, uh, and forces me to look. And, <clears throat> you know, and also the joy that you were talking about. Yeah. It's, like, oh, it's just this. Yeah. So it's not taking everything so seriously, mm -hmm. which allows me to hold it. Yeah. Or not taking the don't walk sign seriously. Right. Right. I mean, you know, if there's a car coming, I won't walk, but it, um, yeah. So the, it's just a way of holding things. Great. Um, it seems to me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, this world is a lot of things. The world is a lot of things. Just thinking how it is both, I mean, it's many, it, not both, it's many things. It's beautiful, so many beautiful things in the world, and yet there's also so many hardships, so many hardships. So there's the suffering, there's the love, there's so, it's a huge range. And it's interesting how in the Dhamma, whatever it is that we come to understand tends to relieve the heart from contraction. So, and it seems odd, and in the beginning it was so odd that understanding this dukkha, not quite right, that dukkha is part of the world, things are not inherently perfect, never will be inherently perfect because it's subject to change. So if we ever had perfection, it would be gone because it would change, right? So it's like there's just no capacity for a conditioned world arising due to its own causes and conditions to be perfect. And yet, according to the teachings, like, you know, 2,600 years ago, the Buddha, totally free mind, free of any of the latent tendencies <clears throat> of, of greed and confusion and aversion, totally free, seeing dukkha, knowing the nature of the world, spent his whole life trying to help people to understand and to really bring joy and beauty to the world, even knowing it would be endless. You would never make the world perfect. And the mind seeing that so perfectly still would spend all of its time 
moving towards where can I help? That's all the Buddha did in a way. Where can I help? Sometimes it was modeling, spending three months a year just sitting quietly, said for future generations just to know that that is worth doing, taking some time, and then spending all of his energy moving towards other beings, right, that are sentient, that feel, that feel suffering and can know the joys of freedom, right, and to really work on the deeper causes of our delusion and our confusion, the systemic, the societal, and the structures, you know, and he really was radical, you know, created monastic orders that really obliterated the caste systems. And it's kind of beautiful. It's like, all right, yes. And yet we live in the midst of so many hierarchies. And then there's internal hierarchies that that have been internalized in our own mind and heart. Better, worse, you know, we're just filled with these views. And so, you know, how how do we really engage in this world knowing it's not going to be perfect? hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, if we could just time hop forward, it will be constantly samsara. Samsara just causes and conditions coming together. And yet, how do we meet that world? Each world that we confront, how do we meet it skillfully? What's onward leading? How do we bring greater joy, greater clarity, greater love and compassion? to this world, what are we contributing? And that's in a way always that open question. And we only have one moment at a time and we don't know how many moments we have, right? So that's that sense of urgency and yet you can't do more than one moment at a time either. You know, it's a kind of a beautiful process of finding the balance of of this life, how to be in it. Yes. So I'm wondering, you know, the first time that I sat with Kishinev when he was in the States many years ago, I was I was so struck by the simplicity um, and power of 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 what he shared, and I found myself wondering. I re- I remember having this moment of like. This is like really radical and mm. it's really different mm-hmm. than anything else that I've kind of thought about about my practice before. And I'd always been very drawn to kind of practices in, in every part of your life. It's not on the cushion. But but I wonder whether or not there's actually a way in which the way in which we practice in the West Mm-hmm. reinforces the separations right. um, that kind of create practice on the cushion versus, okay, now I ring a bell on it and I'm done with my practice. And, and, and whether, you know, things that have been done with, because I, I almost feel like in my practice, mm-hmm. I've been undoing the first, like, you know, 20 years of, right. like, okay, go on retreat, come back, you know, um, to even things as subtle as, you know, you know, being in a meditation hall and say, okay, now we're going to practice, and everybody changes their position, right? Right, okay, now right. Now I'm going to get into my practice position, right? Um, and, and 
they're subtle, but they're not so subtle because they kind of, it almost sends a message that, okay, practicing is something different. So I need to shift my position. I need to be in a particular mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering whether there's, there's a different way to hold the process of moving from retreat space to, which, which you know, many of us who practice for a long time know is very valuable. Right, yes. Right? Yeah. But the back and forth, even from a morning sit or an evening sit, to, mm -hmm. and anything that you've noticed that is helpful in, in breaking down that wall in a less theoretical way. Yeah. Then, um, are you, you're going to be here for the weekend. I know. Okay. Who's here for the weekend, just so I can see? Okay, some of you. That's going to be the essence, in a way, of what we talk about. Utejniya's most recent book, do you have that one? Collecting Gold Dust? I haven't read it. Yeah, okay, because that, that's what that whole book is about, is really daily living, how to practice in daily living, because that's what he did before he became a monk. And almost all the insights he ever shares is about those times when he was at work. And so he says, it's doable, I did it. This is where you know, where his real development of wisdom and awareness came in. So I think for me hearing that, even though I was living at a monastery, so I was cheating a little bit because I was like, you know, it's, obviously it's easy at a monastery. That's all you, you don't have to do anything. You know, you're getting fed and just be aware. Um, but then once I left, how do you do it? How do you keep going? So that's, in a way, that's the real question. Um, we'll explore a lot this weekend about that. Susa is also very steeped in, in Utejaniya. Um, kind of encouragements. It, part of it is also it's just the nature of going on retreat and coming off. We're usually there for five days, weekend or seven days, and there's only so many things that get covered. And then, and a lot of it is that kind of here are the instructions to do. So then we start doing, and then the view in the mind starts to get conditioned. Oh, this is what meditation is. And I'd say one of the things that Utejaniya does really well is he really tries to get you to see what are your views and to use your intelligence, use your wisdom. Because we're so often battling our thoughts, because it's our thoughts that we tend to lose awareness with, it's very easy then to assume we shouldn't be thinking. But we need to think. We need to think in our practice. We need to think skillfully, wisely. How am I doing this? Right? How am I? You know, how do I do awareness? So we want to think about it. And then so little things, we start getting curious of, okay, what happens when I walk into a hall like this? What views do I have? Now, I see a lot of yogis on retreat that as soon as they start moving into the hall to sit down, it's like, oh, they become like professional yogi. It's like, and professional yogi is what Utejaniya would call it. it was like, he'd call it Dhamma Trauma. <laughs> so Dhamma Trauma is you come into the hall to practice the Dhamma, and then you've been traumatized so much from <laughs> trying so hard that you then become so serious. As oh, his dhamma trauma. So then he would say, "Oh, there's another yogi." He would point to, "Oh, there's another yogi, dhamma trauma." And then he would say, "Wouldn't let them go to the meditation hall." This is a monk telling someone, "Don't go to the meditation hall," because for them, already the attitude was striving. It's difficult to see striving with striving. 
right? Because striving does this, is narrow, how can you see? This is, oh, oh, this is what it feels like to strive. is a new experience to feel more relaxed. And this is why it's unsettling for our mind, because we are so used to practicing with wanting and not wanting, right? Striving, pushing away, trying to get, struggling. So it's difficult to trust, to allow the awareness to work, just to work. One little ring, just let it work, rest. When we sit there, right, and we hold or do something, and that's, that's where we don't quite understand yet what is needed, what is needed, and we explore how do I bring that in different times of the day. And so we'll talk a lot about this weekend, but for those of you that are not going to be here, uh, it's Utejaniya. If you do that search, his website offers these books freely. So you just write to the website and can get sent them. He, the person that um, distributes them is here in New York, in the city. So it's local. Yeah, Martin. Yeah. Um, and I'll just say, you know, the Dhamma, all of us, is so broad. There are so many styles and so many techniques. And to really know for yourself, how are you using your practice? You know, and if, you, if something is working, then you use it. And then if it feels like it's beginning to limit, then ask yourself a question, is this, can I allow the awareness to start to know more? So you start to kind of curious a little bit. Am I holding, holding back? Or what does it feel like to hold back? Or am I controlling? Or what does it feel like to control? Right? So using that, and that's Dhamma Vichaya, like the second factor of awakening of the, of the seven. So mindfulness, then Dhamma Vichaya is that interest. Okay, well, just one. Okay, yes, we'll, we'll pause here just so that we can. Yes. For Dhamma, I always have time, but then whether or not we're going to make enemies with the Sangha, <laughs> with our spiritual friends, we'll take, we'll do one more. Uh, just a quick question. Great. Maybe yeah. Quick, but, um, it was nice seeing you in the elevator, by the way. Yes, absolutely. Um, in my uh, thinking about the patterns of mind that you were talking about earlier, that yeah. the, and bringing practice into our daily lives, yeah. A lot of my reflection lately have been on the nature of fear driving so much of that. Fear driving so much? Of the patterns and the behaviors and the reactions throughout the day. Yeah. Fear of you know yeah. not being able to control, fear of not yeah. being able to successfully, yeah. act, you know, whatever, not being good enough, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could just speak for a moment about working with fear mm. and as it comes up in the daily experience as opposed to like on the cushion. Yeah, yeah, okay, so, all right, so nine o'clock. Are you going to be here for the weekend? <laughs> oh. uh. Hmm. oh, gosh, this, that's a big, it is a really big topic. I, I, I just, I had, uh, for those, and anyone that sat with me knows this, I've had so much fear of public speaking. It was my big, big, big very big monster that I just would try to avoid at all costs. So fear is powerful and it really kind of was the driving force around everything that I chose to do in school and different, you know, if I ever knew I had to public speak, that was a void. So the things that we avoid 
avoid tend to become scarier because now they're filled with the stories and the views about it. And it's helpful to know what are we really trying to avoid? We're trying to avoid feeling this way, feeling the fear, feeling the anxiety, feeling the worry. For me also then feeling being seen, being judged is not good enough, feelings of shame. So each of those, and this takes a bit of time, each of those, right, all packaged together in this bundle of experience that's just our identity, but each of those, as we start to open to them, it's amazing what we can be with. So at first we would say is what we have is it's immediate, aversion towards these patterns which is unconscious and reactive, reflexive. It's just sort of immediate reflex. I don't like it. So then we try to not experience it. So we begin to recognize this is what's here. And we turn slowly from aversion towards it to a little bit of interest. Is this okay to feel fear? That underlying attitude is where we're going to eventually get to see that's where a lot of the power comes from. I don't like it. I don't like these feelings. So that's the aversion. So this is going to take a little bit of time to just, you know, to settle in and to feel, think of anything that feels really uncomfortable. It feels uncomfortable because the the pattern of aversion is meeting it. Because the same thing met with equanimity, met with seeing it as nature as causes and conditions will be tasted differently, right? It's the same pattern. This is what's amazing. So this is, let's just take something ordinary, ordinary, could be some pain like in the knee. It feels really overwhelming when there's aversion, right? So aversion magnifies. As we get interested in the sensations, the pain looks different. I'm not calling it pain. We're getting curious about the actual moment-to-moment experience. And we can see things that would normally escalate in the mind because the fuel of aversion is feeding it, begin to see, be seen as, through the lens of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, that it's changing. It's just some, another phenomenon that's unsatisfactory. And it's a process. It's not self causes and conditions. But that's something we need to kind of move towards in all the different dynamics that create fear. But even the fact that you're interested and curious, in a way, that's enough. Really, that's enough. Because if, if you're knowing this, and a little bit of interest is there, the mind will learn. It'll learn. Just keep bringing that in. So that's very, there's a lot that we, I'd have to hear back and forth, but we'll pause there. Yeah. I hope to talk to you in the future about it. So, yeah. Okay. Shall we? Let's just sit for, so sit into, get into your meditation posture. <laughs> now, don't move. Don't move. Stay where you are. Don't move. And just see if you can sense what starts to happen already. Conditions for awareness probably coming back.
a, it's a joy and a blessing to spend this time with you. And if I don't see you again, I hope your journey goes well. And for those of you that I will see tomorrow, have a good rest. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.